So a long, long time ago when um, people were just being dressed in their animal skins, I mean, it's all you had is that you just wore whatever you could kill and skin or trade for. And so everybody's walking around in the same colored clothes, right? If you're wearing wolf skin or uh, leather or everybody's in brown and gray and then somebody spilt some wine on themselves or spilt some food on themselves and somebody else said, hey, that's a nice color. I like that. It's like every Sunday. You get a call every Sunday. So, dyeing was invented. Now, I don't know how, that, how it went down. I don't know if it went down like that. But, uh, so this cloth, or it's uh, felt, I dunk it in red water, and it dyes it. And uh, this is actually one of the first uses of the Greek word baptizo. Um, and it, it meant this. I mean, dying was the craze, right? I got a nice picture of it here. Uh, still done by hand in, in third world countries and other parts of the world. Not just third world, but in other parts of the world. Try not to get that on myself. <laughs> uh, and, you know, as you, you just find your... This is food coloring, which was easy. But there's all kinds of substances out there. I remember uh, we used to do with the kids in high school, like uh, cabbage leaves. You can cook and cook them, and you get a, a really nice red dye. Uh, in the Bible, in ancient times, uh, a beautiful red was made from a certain type of worm that was called the tola worm. That you, uh, it, it was had a red uh, uh, tint to it, and you just cooked it and crushed it up, and it made a beautiful red color. And that you would die clothes with. So if you're, so this is baptism, right? Baptizo. And if this is actually the blood of Christ, you, know, you have been baptized. And even though this is what it means, and so John would come and dunk people in water uh, for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. We'll see that in a second. And, you know, this, this uh, it came to mean immersion. Or, therefore, identification. So, if you were dunked in something, you were identified with that thing. Uh, and, and so, when it comes to the gift of God the Holy Spirit for the church, it's got nothing to do with water. It's got nothing to do with dying. Well, D-Y-E. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with uh, being immersed in water, yet the church continues to use the same word. God the Holy Spirit uses the word baptism for the Spirit. And also continues to use the same ritual that John used, which was to dunk in water. Uh, and so why did God do that? It maintained the ritual and also maintained the language and as we find out, it's because of this. You know, this one of the great verses, beautiful verse, about this is you as a believer. You've just believed in Christ, not just, but you believed in Christ as your Savior of no merit to you, just by faith. 
And all of you, it says in Galatians 3.27, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And so it is an immersion, isn't it? You can see why God kept the language and why he also kept the ritual. You were identified. The moment you believed, you were identified with Christ. You were immersed in Christ. You became a part of Christ. And although dyes can be washed out, when you are dyed, really, in essence, your soul is dyed with the, the blood of Christ. You are changed forever. And you become new. And, and when the purity of what the blood of Christ means, which is the work of Christ on the cross, cannot coexist with a sin nature, cannot coexist with sin. The temple was holy. Unholy things couldn't go in there. Now that you're the temple of God because of this, you can't, God, of course, it could not have made it. Oh, no, I just got red dye all over myself. That is awesome. It's all over my computer. I'm over here shaking it around. Well, as much as you are dyed in the blood of Christ, you do not become a genius or smart or even remotely not an idiot. Look at that. That's awesome. Well, I've been this suit has been baptized. It's time to buy another one. So anyway, we'll have an offering. We'll have a special suit offering at the end of class. You know, to get me for Christmas. A shirt, too. I, I just all over myself. Excellent. Oh, Keith. Never miss an opportunity for a horrible joke. Anyway, um, now that you're... See, you could not be made alive through the blood of Christ without being killed. The sin nature had to die. And that is a part of baptism too. So we'll get to that now. Uh, just uh, as far as announcements, to remind uh, that we uh, are canceling classes after Christmas. So the week of Christmas, unfortunately, I already made the plans months ago. I don't remember intentionally trying to skip a Sunday. It just worked out that way. So um, I'm, I'm now regretting having canceled uh, Sunday, which is New Year's Eve. But it's already done. So the plans are made. It's okay. So uh, we will not have class on uh, the week after Christmas. We'll be back on January 3rd, I think it is. All right? Okay. Let's pray. Let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for the time that we have together to um, be with him, love his word, to be instructed by his word, to be together in that venture of learning and uh, growing in grace and knowledge. And so with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that through your grace we are all so blessed. Blessed by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. By his death on the cross and resurrection, all who have believed upon him have been baptized by God the Holy Spirit. This is much, much more as you show us, but then water baptism. It's not a ritual. It's the reality of being completely changed from what we were to what you have made us to be. That includes a resurrection of life. 
And may we, Father, see that life and have wonder at that life and really thoroughly enjoy that life. As we explore your word today and see that, these principles, may our hearts be truly enlightened. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All rise, please.
Uh, we're going to start in Matthew 21. Matthew 21 for a brief second, and then back to Matthew 3. So, um, in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, Roger, could you uh, turn me down just a little bit? I'm hearing a bit of a tested. Yeah, there we go. Perfect. Thank you. Um, the uh, Gospel of John, uh, Matthew. <laughs> what Gospel are we in? So uh, I hope you're enjoying it. I, it's a, uh, it's different. I've never really taught. I did the Gospel of John years ago, but uh, this this Gospel is has become different for me. It's um, it's not it, it's different from epistles, obviously. That so it's a different kind of literature, really, uh, than an epistolatory letter is more instructional, exhort it has exhortation, lots of commands. Uh, whereas this, especially at the the first four chapters, is a story, and what we get from this story is really uh, in the first four chapters, Matthew, um, in genius fashion, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, pretty much summarizes the story of the Bible and of Israel and summarizes it in the fulfillment that is Christ all and, and all the way to the end to the, you know, here's the kingdom of heaven. Well, what is the kingdom of heaven? That's the, the final kingdom that has been prophesied by the prophets. So we have Old Testament, we have New Testament, we have Book of Revelation, we have eternity, we have the fulfillment of Israel's history, we have the fulfillment of or really the solution to our problem. And that's where we get to today. Water baptism. Right? It, it's a thing. Wars have been fought over water baptism. Uh, and 
We have the water baptism of John. Jesus is baptized by John, which flabbergasts John, as it should have. What are you doing? Because it's, a, it's for sinners, and Jesus is not one. So we'll look at that. And we have the water baptism of the church, uh, which, you know, is it the same as John's? Is it, is it different? It is definitely different. And uh, all of these combine to reveal the incredible truth that is the true baptism, which is a baptism of the Spirit, which John does state here. Uh, by this baptism of the Spirit, you and I have been given some amazing gifts. And one is forgiveness of all sin. That is an amazing gift. If you're a sinner like me, and I know you are, uh, the more you strive to be like Christ, the more horrible you see sin to be. And when you see it in yourself, the more disgusted you are by it. And, therefore, disgusted with yourself. If it were not for the forgiveness of all sin, this would be a hopeless venture. But it's not just the forgiveness of sin. If it's only the forgiveness of sin, you, well, essentially must drown. Because in baptism, the forgiveness of sin is going into the water. But we come out. And that is represented by our resurrection with Christ. So there is not only the forgiveness of sin, there's a second aspect to this, which is the giving of the Spirit. The giving of the Spirit enters us into union with Christ, which puts us in a position in the body of Christ, which makes us a part of the family, God's family, sons and daughters forever, which means we're heirs with Christ. And therefore, in the body, we have this spiritual gifts and everything that go with that. And in this union with Christ, we are forever with him, not just with him, in him, and him in us. It's nothing on earth is like it. And that's why this baptism of the Spirit is something that the world never saw before. And you have it. Every believer has it. So why are Christians not filled with wonder? Why do we, I'll say we, because I do this, walking around, bogged down with life, cranky and unhappy as the rest of the schmucks walking around here. Why? And it's because we lose sight of what Christ has done for us. This is a gift. This is a grace gift. No one could have ever earned such a thing. So let's define baptism. Baptism it comes from baptizo. This is the verb. There's a, the noun is baptisma. Uh, but both would refer to the same thing. It means to baptize. Baptizo means uh, to baptize. And it comes from bapto, which is the Greek word to dip. So you can see where this came to mean immersion, uh, like I started with. I'm not going to be careful of picking these up now, but that's where this started. This word means to dip. But then also not, so actually one of the sources of this word is uh, dipping a vessel into another, drawing like a cup into a bigger bowl and drawing it out, like a cup of wine or something. Plato uh, hilariously used it metaphorically for being overwhelmed with questions. 
He, Plato said, you are baptizing me with your incessant questions. Made me think of kids. It was like, can you, you know, they're asking you a thousand questions. You're being baptized in their silly stupidity, I guess. But uh, so it means immersion or identification. And this is exactly how it's being used in the scripture. Except John's baptism is, is what he says it is. All right? we Just take it for what, it, what he says it is. This is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we scratch our heads, and no, I, but just take him as a, at his word that there's a forgiveness of sins involved here. So does water baptism and confession equal the forgiveness of sins? Well, we know, in fact, that it does not because no one is forgiven by a ritual and no one is forgiven by repenting. I'd say, you know, repenting is, God, I'm going to stop going in this wrong direction and I'm going to head towards you. And that's what repentance is. But even if we say that, and even if we were truly sincere, and even if we did it on a consistent basis, we would not get our sins paid for. And so John's baptism is looking forward to, it's, it's a ritual. So it's a, a symbol or a representation of that which is to come. But John didn't come up with this. John didn't say, you know what, I'm going to water baptize Israel. His baptism is definitely unique. And that's why we're in Matthew 21, 25. John's ministry is so important that he's brought up by the Lord on several occasions. And he's also brought up by Paul when Paul recounts the history of Israel when he's witnessing in synagogues. He mentions John. And so John's significance is big. Notice Matthew 21, 25. Jesus asks them a question. It's one of the very few times he does. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? He's asking Pharisees, and this is the, just a few days before his cross. This is one of his last days in Jerusalem where he is ministering to the city. And he asks them this question. Now, the answer from the chief priests here, these are not Pharisees, sorry, these are chief priests, that uh, tell us that the answer is from heaven. So notice what they say in verse 25. And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why did you not believe in him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. So what their answer tells us that John's baptism comes from heaven. Because it's the only, Jesus said it comes from one place. It either comes from men or it comes from heaven. You have two options here. And they said, look, if we say heaven, he's going to say, why didn't you believe in him? And obviously, they should have believed in him because John is the one from Isaiah 40 who was sent to Israel to prepare them for their Messiah. And they should have believed in him. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so, they, this is sure to us that John's baptism comes from heaven. So, God wanted water baptism. Right? Just to you know, put that out there. There's a lot of pro-water baptism, anti-water baptism. There's sprinkling, pouring, dunking, and all of that. Now, pagan religions long before Christ were cleansing, had cleansing rituals. So did Israel. Israel had, by the Mosaic law, cleansing rituals. John's looks nothing like 
the cleansing rituals of the Old Testament. But the pagans in the ancient world had cleansing rituals because water was obviously uh, needful for life. People knew this. They worshipped it. Uh, They even had God of the Nile. The Nile in Egypt was life itself, and so it was worshipped. There was even a whole priesthood dedicated to the Nile, to the worship of the Nile. Those are all from earth, whatever those cleansings are. People still, like in India, go cleanse themselves in the water in, in a religious ritual. And so this is something that's been around. It was around before John's baptism and has always been around. But there's some from men and there's one from God. And this is from heaven. So John's baptism was unique. Uh, Oh, yes, yes. Sorry, I skipped ahead of myself. Backtrack. Baptism is used in the New Testament for ritual washing. So this same word, baptismos, is used here in Luke 11:38. Other passages in the Gospels as well. So the, for uh, quoting here, Luke 11:38, when the Pharisees saw it, that he was surprised. When the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. That word "washed" is baptism. But this is also from men because their ceremonial washings of the Pharisees were a, uh, different from the ceremonial washings of Moses, uh, of the Mosaic Law. They, were ad- they added to, uh, significantly, they added to the ritual of cleansing. But so just so you know, baptism is used of a ritual cleansing. But this is nothing like what John is doing. First off, if you were cleansing according to the uh, Old Testament law, you were doing it to yourself. It was a washing of body or hands, uh, and you were not being, ad- the, the, the ritual was not being administered to you. You were not confessing sins before you did it, and there was no claimant that you were forgiven of anything when you did, and, and when you did wash. But John is saying that this is a repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And therefore, John's baptism was unique. It was from heaven, and it's a symbol of something that was to come. And John knew this, because it's John who says, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming who is greater than I, and he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, right before he ascends to heaven, says the exact same thing to the disciples. He says, stay in Jerusalem... As you remember, John baptized you with water. I baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Stay in Jerusalem. And sure enough, 50 days later in Jerusalem on Pentecost, they are baptized by God the Holy Spirit. So John's baptism is absolutely vital, but very temporary. Not even the church age uh, water baptism is like it. Uh, It's like it, but... John, the title on John's baptism is a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The title on the church's baptism is in the name of Christ Jesus. That is different. And so we'll explore that a bit. So go to Mark 1, 4. As a symbol of the renewal of life, 
Are you fit? This is what John is saying to Israel. Are you fit for the kingdom of heaven? Are you ready? <clears throat> is anybody ready? It was connected with a renewal of life. What is repentance? It's a renewal. It's a new beginning, isn't it? Uh, uh, repentance is that I'm going to stop doing what I have been doing. And in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 3, there's uh, people are asking John what they should do, and John gives them instructions on stopping one thing and doing another. And it all centers around their greed, in fact, which is pretty amazing. We also find in Luke's gospel that there are Gentiles there, which is not our subject today, but it's very interesting that there are soldiers asking John what they should do. And there are, those are Roman soldiers. There are no Jewish Roman soldiers. Not yet, anyway. So, um, it connected with renewal of life, which is implied by repentance, meaning a life that is turned from selfish pursuits to the love and worship of the Lord. And this is important. This is what John wants them to do. This is what the Lord wants Israel to do. To be, and this could only be asked of Israel, you recognize. We should all recognize this. John's not, there's no Baptist sent to the pagan nations. Only to the elect Israel, because Israel is under the law. Israel is under the covenants. Israel should know their Lord. They are commanded to love the Lord their God. And they are the ones who have been given the prophecies, whether the people know them or not, they're responsible to know them, that their Messiah, their King, is coming. And he came. And this forerunner also prophesied in Isaiah and Malachi that he was to come. They were to know this. And uh, so only to Israel could this be asked. Be ready. Make the path straight. Make the way straight for your king. So Mark 1.4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. No, nothing like this language is used of the Old Testament washings. It is only here. It's unique. Even church-age baptism isn't described as this. Church-age baptism is in the name of Christ. So this is unique. It's one of a kind. It's to prepare Israel for her king and his kingdom, which is at the doorstep. That's what near means. It's at hand, meaning it's near. It's on the doorstep. This is the first time in history that such a thing was done. But that makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's the first time in history that the king of kings has come to earth in the form of a human, beginning his ministry and showing himself to his own, to his people. If they prepare themselves for the Lord, there's every indication to, to see here that they would have received their kingdom at the time. But they could not, but the cross would still have to come first. It would still have to come. Because no matter how hard they repented or how sincere they were or how many times they were baptized in the Jordan, they are still sinners. And so John's baptism reveals that the only way to the kingdom of heaven is by the forgiveness of sins. This is significant. Is you, have, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven without having all of your sins forgiven. So go to Matthew chapter 3.
And remember, baptism means immersion or identification. Just like dyeing a piece of cloth. But a water baptism, it's on the flesh, is it not? It's a ritual. It doesn't penetrate to the soul by any means. You could soak in that Jordan for a year. It's that water is not going to penetrate to the inside of you. Matthew 3.11, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. It's not, we had a lesson, uh, I forget, some few lessons ago, where we looked at the fact that John was absolutely on board willing to accept his role. He was all out for the will of God, no matter what it was. And this, this is going to be a part of our struggle, because each of us are given... At the baptism of the Spirit, you're given a spiritual gift. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 3, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. You are given a spiritual gift and you are given a place in the body of Christ. And God did not ask your opinion on what you would like. He made it that way and we all have to accept it. And what's going to get in the way of that is our pride. We know this. Right? We're like little kids in adult bodies saying, I want. I want what I want, and God is not going to budge. Little kids can cry and whine and annoy their parents enough that the parents may cave. They, they learn this quick. They may, the parents may cave. God will never cave. He loves you too much for that. We have to accept where God puts us, and at times it's very hard. And what, those are times of great growth when you struggle to discover I must do what God wills without knowing the future of where it's going. And you'll be closer to him than you've ever been. And you'll be happier than you've ever been. So John is like this. John, very short ministry, significant, and staying out in the wilderness in, dressed in camel hair and a belt. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff. (laughs) I always get that wrong. Chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, We're not going to deal with the fire part today. That's coming up later this week. But fire could mean purification in terms of when you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, you are purified, cleansed of all sin. However, fire can also mean judgment. And in the context here of seeing his winnowing fork, his threshing floor, and also the burning up of the chaff is significantly the context points to the fire of judgment. There's going to be a judgment on the nation of Israel when they reject him. There's going to be a judgment on the world when he returns. And again, that judgment is the same, whether Jew or Gentile, on those who reject him. Now, if you're baptized by the Spirit, a baptism of fire, if it means purification, it's done. It's a done deal. You're purified and forgiven of all sin, but also you will not be judged in terms of fire. You will not be judged. In ter- you are saved forever. 
<clears throat> we know that baptism for the forgiveness of sins can only be a metaphor for the cleansing of the soul, meaning water baptism. Water baptism could not cleanse a soul, but it is significant because, again, it's from heaven, so it's a metaphor for that very thing. John's ministry, therefore, is pointing to a need, and a need the need is to change. Israel, you need to repent. Now, in the history of Israel, they've been told to repent and repent and repent and repent so many times by so many prophets. And we find in one instance, in the book of Zechariah, in chapter 1, this is after they return from Babylon, the captives come home, and the prophet Zechariah is sent to them and tells them to repent. And it, sure enough, they did. This, like, if you're reading the Old Testament, you see this line in Zechariah. You're like, wow, that's new. They do. They did repent. But then another prophet comes along, who's Malachi. He's the last one. He's the last book in the Old Testament. And he has fire. And you find out from Malachi, well, they repented back in Zechariah's day, but they're no good now. Something went wrong. In other words, their repentance was temporary. But isn't that true of us all? I mean, there are some repent. You know, we overcome things, but certainly if we were to say, you know what, God, I repent of all sin. I, I don't want, I'm not going to, look, we should all have this attitude. I hate to break it to you. I know we're all sinners, but we should have a mind of, I am not going to sin ever again. And knowing that we're going to, by the way, but none of us are going to be sinless. But um, the, uh, the, you know, you're going to return to sin, and you know that you are. And so, therefore, this purification is pointing to something, and it's definitely a need for a change. <clears throat> but as we know, that change, or any change, could not come through ritual nor could it come through self-determination. Self-determination meaning I'm going to repent. And even as sincere as you are, your self-determination is not going to carry you all the way. So we can press the analogy that John's baptism is like the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law reveals us as sinners. Revealed Israel as sinners. They're told in Deuteronomy... If you follow the law, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you're going to be cursed. And there's a long list of Deuteronomy 28, a scary list of curses that would come upon Israel when they broke the law. And so John's baptism is like that. And that would make sense because Israel is still under the law. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit by the Lord is something different. It's very different. And in fact, it's not the law, is it? Because there's permanency to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that is what the Bible calls the new covenant. Go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, The Lord's baptism of the Holy Spirit is a new covenant in his blood. Now, this has not escaped the notice of many expositors that the Lord's Supper 
is very much connected to uh, the Lord's baptism. Meaning when he's baptized by John and in some ways connected to the church age baptism, water baptism. Look at Matthew 26, 27. Drink from it, all of you. Of course, he's handing them the cup. Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Well, what covenant? Because there's several which poured out for many for, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the blood of the covenant. Well, fortunately, we have multiple gospels. In Luke 22:20, 20, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And God Almighty, do I love this. This is just is symphony to me. The fact that God would have seen this and controls everything and would set before us centuries and centuries and centuries of, come on guys, here's my law, get it right. And the best of us who tried as hard as they could, who really had self-will and self-control, couldn't do it. We tried and tried. And God says to us, and it, it, I, you know, it, I think of things like, why did God wait so long? I mean, why is the history of Israel like 1,400 years, 2,300 years? We start back in Egypt with, or with Abraham. It's like two, over 2,000 years. Couldn't you just get this over with? You know? But in one way, and I, I don't know why. I, I, you'd have to ask God why he took his time. And in fact, maybe he could have taken 10,000 years and it would have been way longer. But the fact that God like exhausts the issue, the exhausted issue of mankind, are you a sinner or what? Can you live up to my righteousness or not? Can you repent truly of your sins? Can you cleanse yourself? Can you really live? Even if you want to live with me, but now that you're fallen, can you really walk with me? And the answer is no. Not a one of us. And this is a wonderful thing to know about yourself. Because it will help you avoid the number one issue in all Christian lives, which is pride. I mean issue, bad issue. A bad issue. You are a proud sinner. Know it. There's no other way around it. You might be able to look around and see some other people who are a little more proud than you, so you think. You say, well, I'm not as proud as that guy. I used to always use this analogy. I don't know if it's acceptable, but it's one piece of dog do saying to another piece of dog do, I don't smell as bad as you do. That's all it is. Look at Ezekiel 36. Doing a lot of passages. Ezekiel 36. So, keeping us on track here. I baptize you with water. One's coming. That's... Uh, greater than I is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This baptism has to include the forgiveness of sins. 
Does John's water baptism forgive people of their sins? It's a ritual that points to the forgiveness of sins, but it's not effective to the forgiveness of sins. That can only come through the blood of Christ. But it's God saying, look, get yourselves ready for your coming king and confess your sins to John. John cleanses. Hopefully the nation gets ready for their coming Messiah. They did not, which we know. And it could now could it have gone down another way? That's what people say. You know, we would say, well, what if they accepted him? Then there'd be no church age, and we think about, well, what would it? There's no point in thinking of that. Things can only go one way. There's no alternative plans to God's way. There's only one way. It's His way. All right. So look at Ezekiel 36:25. Then, and this is Ezekiel, they're in captivity now in Babylon when Ezekiel is prophesying to them. And Ezekiel is saying to them, after a, a scathing, just like all the other prophets, a scathing rebuke of their idol worship, God negative, terrible, sinful attitudes. And then he gives them the promise. This is the new covenant. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Ah, it just gives me goosebumps reading it. How can this be? Doesn't it sound like God's going to force him to do his will? Indeed, he will. Doesn't this sound like something that you've actually already received? And you most certainly have. This is the new covenant in my blood. When Jesus says this is the new covenant, he's not, he doesn't say, well, you know, don't confuse it with the new covenant that you know of as Jews. These are Jews. They know what the new covenant is. And it is for the forgiveness of sin, as we just saw in Matthew. And here, in Ezekiel, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. That is forgiveness. And he uses the analogy of water. I will sprinkle water, clean water on you, and you will be clean. This is a baptism. And it's not a ritual water baptism. We have two things here. We have the forgiveness of sins, which speaks of the grave. Now, when Jesus goes into the water at his baptism, he goes in the water and then comes out. It's the language in the gospel is very clear that he goes in and comes out. So we say, well, you know, did he sprinkle uh, Jesus or did he pour on Jesus? And they have all these arguments. Well, it says that he came out of the water. I believe the Greek preposition is ek, and it means to come out. So however you view that. But his baptism. Now, as John says to him, you should baptize me. I don't baptize you. And Jesus says something amazing. He says, let's do this to fulfill all unrighteousness, uh, uh, not unrighteousness. That would be wrong. 
This must be done, Jesus says, to fulfill all righteousness. And in your mind, underline that all. Not my righteousness only. Not your righteousness, John. All these sinners on the hillside who are waiting to be baptized. All these people who are listening. The Pharisees are coming down to see what John's about. They're out there. Uh, All of them. Put me in the water, John. Not as a sinner. So one way that I I have thought about this in the past, which kind of helped, is if you can imagine, as all these people went into the water, all their sins went into the water, and when Jesus went into the water, he identified himself, immersed himself in their sins. And then when he comes out, that's the resurrection. And it's a new spirit. It's a new life. You find in this doctrine of the baptism of the Spirit that you can't just, you can't be a Corinthian, but you can, but you shouldn't. You can't be a Corinthian and say, you know what, I'm forgiven of all things. That's awesome. I have eternal life. Yes, you do. I'm forgiven of all sin. Yes, you are. Well, shoot, man, I'm just going to sit here and do nothing. And so you've got the first part right. You went into the water, but you never came out. If you don't come out of the water, you drown. You die. Faith without works is what? That's exactly what James means there. It's not a salvation verse. Don't be silly. It's a verse about living. The baptism of the Spirit was given to us as life. And see here in Ezekiel, you have the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, I'm gonna, uh, he says, I will give you, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Yeah. And then in, in the language is, I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. Isn't that amazing? I say, well, now, hold on, God. If you're going to cause me to walk in your statutes, I'd be sinless right now and I'd always be doing your will. Think about the wording. When I say I'm going to cause you to do something, it doesn't mean I'm going to force you. But if you actually did the thing that I was causing you to do, who is the one who gets the credit or the merit for that? Not you. The Lord does. Being baptized by the Spirit, which John foresaw, which would come to the church See, God in His genius knew obviously that Israel would reject the Son, but the kingdom would not be taken completely off the table. An interim period, this is all Matthew 13, it's the very middle of the Gospel. There's an interim period in which the kingdom would be withheld, uh, put on hold, and a new age would come in which the spiritual aspects of the new covenant. See, I'm a believer that there's one new covenant, not two, not one for the church and one for Israel. Good theologians on both sides. But either way, even if you think there's two, there's these spiritual blessings is that God has put His Spirit within you, He's made you a new creature, and He is forcing, not forcing, causing you to do His will. So when you do God's will, You can take an ounce of credit for it. 
Isn't that great? I mean, it's not great for my pride. Joe wants to take credit for his good works. He does. It just, pride is like uh, under a half inch of loose topsoil in every one of us. Lingering. Waiting to come up. But he's dead. There's another great analogy there that the Lord gives us about himself that is, I'll get to right here. So, forgiveness of sin is gone into the water, washing, immersion, and into the grave. When you died, when sorry, when he died, you died. The new spirit is immersion. That's coming out of the water. It's resurrection, walking in newness of life. So go to Romans 6, and we'll see this. So there's a beautiful tie-in. If you're looking for a tie-in from the Lord's baptism and the baptism of the Spirit that he promised to a New Testament passage, it's in Romans 6, especially verses 3 and 4. Now, I hope we see here, too, which Romans 6 brings out so beautifully. If we rest in our forgiveness and rubber stamp every thought with the word grace, in other words, I'm going to live how I want to live. Call it grace. I've got a big red rubber stamp. I'm not going to love my neighbor. I hate that guy. Grace. I'm going to give in to my addictions. What the heck, man? It's, I'm going to have fun. I'm saved anyway. Aren't I forgiven? Grace. Am I being too loud? No? I don't see any of you really sleeping here this morning, which is miraculous. Maybe it's because I am so loud. You know what I mean here, right? I'm not going to serve in the church. Why should I do that? Grace. I got my grace stamp. Dude, I'm stamping everything. Heck, I'm going to turn it around and stamp my forehead. I'm grace. Don't you judge me. Who do you think you are, pastor? I know you're a sinner. Uh-huh. You don't know half of it. <laughs> it's pretty bad in here sometimes. But when you and I find ourselves driven to do that which is good, it is because he baptized you with the Spirit. When you find yourself actually accomplishing the good and loving that person and not being afraid and actually being gracious and actually having divine thoughts, it's because he baptized you with the Holy Spirit. Now, you've also don't know it's not like it's not like going like God, right? You had to struggle through some things. You had to learn a lot of the word. It's true. But even your drive to learn the Word of God has, is in you because He baptized you with His Spirit. His baptism, I mean, forget the water thing here. His baptism means that in His supernatural way, God immersed you into His own nature and made you brand new. That's some exciting stuff. And it should wow every one of us. What does this mean for my life, you know? And get particular. I don't have time here this morning to get particular. I know that I should. The people, 
The professors at Corbin tell me to get particular. I'm, uh, I'm learning slowly. I can't rush things, especially for me. I mess things up when I go too fast. But, um, you know, what does it mean to you and your neighbor, to you and your children, to you and your marriage, to you, to your significant other? What does it mean to you in your free time, to your how you handle your money, how you do your household chores even? What does it mean for a new creature to do? This one who has been dyed in the wool with the blood of Christ, what does it mean to do what I do every single day? How I, how I carry myself in church, how I speak to others, how I pray especially. Now, how I learn God's word, on and on. All the things that I do with my every single day, day in, day out activity, my living. We can forget this completely and be the same old cranky people who are burdened by the worries of the world, like everybody else is out here. But that's not us. And it's all because you were baptized by the Holy Spirit. So the baptism of the Spirit enters us into union with Christ. In Galatians 3... I think it's 24. Paul says you are baptized by the Spirit and you are therefore clothed with Christ. What in the world does that mean? (laughs) I mean, even if I don't fully know what that, I don't understand how that even is, but how spectacular is it that I'm actually clothed with Christ? Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. He has to say this after Romans 5. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So should we sin more? Christ says, uh, Christ, Paul through Christ. This is an optative, uh, one of the, this is a common optative in in the New Testament. May it never be. That's Paul saying, I wish that would never happen for you. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? And that when Christ went into the water, that's what it symbolized when John baptized him. And that, that symbol was fulfilled when Christ died on the cross and went into the tomb. Therefore, verse 4 we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father so we too might walk in newness of life and that walking in newness of life i wouldn't consider it any different than walking by the spirit because this baptism is the baptism of the spirit and we would make the connection here that the baptism of the spirit now gives me newness of life which is to walk or to live by the Spirit. So Paul continues. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, and that's a first-class condition, if and it's true, certainly we shall, all, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And you see, there's your forgiveness. You are free from the penalty of sin. And Paul says here, so what should we do with this? 
Now, if we have died with Christ, and we have, it's another first-class condition. The first-class condition is an if and an uh, indicative mood in the verb. They're clear here. If we have died with Christ, and we have, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him, and therefore not over you either. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And then the conclusion to this thought, to this paragraph. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider means to know it to be true. And I think that is the struggle. In fact, I'm very confident in that. That the struggle with believers is not knowing this verse but knowing it to be true. In other words, this is your soul. You are so died with the blood of Christ, with the new covenant, with his tomb and his resurrection, that that is exactly how you see yourself. And then this becomes your absolute reality. It's not just a verse to know. That's how I used to know this verse. But this verse is becoming more of a, this is who I am. And therein lies the struggle. And there's always going to be struggle. After Jesus gets baptized himself in fulfillment of Isaiah 42, and in Isaiah 42 where God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, and then he, I will put my spirit upon him. And sure enough, John is sitting there watching it, that the spirit descends from the heaven and falls upon the Lord, right in full fulfillment of Isaiah 42.1. And then what happens? And that's it. That's, he's, he's ready to go to start his ministry. But what's the first thing that happens to him? The spirit that he has received from heaven, the Holy Spirit, leads him into the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. And the devil does not want. He can't undo your salvation. He can't undo your baptism of the Spirit. He can't undo your position as a son or a daughter of God. He knows this. But he sure can get your eyes on the wrong thing. And every, all three temptations are trying to get the Lord not to do the will of the Father. Turn the stones into bread. That is not the will of God. Jump off the temple. Also not the will of God. Bow down and worship me. Not the will of God. Stupid. Go. He didn't say stupid, but he did say go. Beat it, buddy. You should worship the Lord your God. When Jesus stands firm against all three temptations which are to not do the Father's will, he uses the book of Deuteronomy. Two passages from Deuteronomy 6, one passage from Deuteronomy 8, and those passages have a header. There's a passage that starts and flows to those passages that he quotes, and that header passage is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your uh, spirit. That's the header. And the Lord does. 
When you're convinced of what God has done for you and blessed you and given to you, your love for Him abounds. And so, that's the baptism of the Spirit. It's an intro to the baptism of the Spirit. It changes us. The baptism of John, the precursor. It's revealing what is to come. In symbolism, for sure. It also reveals that there's something wrong with us. John's baptism reveals there's something wrong and that it has to change. John's baptism reveals that we can't change what needs to be changed. We can try, and they should. Israel should have, but they couldn't. They didn't do it. They couldn't do it. So John says, I baptize you with water. Someone far greater than me is coming, and he's going to baptize you with something else. That something else means that God is going to do for you what you could never do for yourself. He's going to make you new. You could never do it yourself. When you're made new, like our passage in Ezekiel, he, that newness, by the way, not just new, but also the gift of the Spirit to indwell you. Right? This is all going to more detail on this coming up this week. But the gift of the Spirit to indwell you and made new and forgiven of sins. Those, all three of those, at, which is the baptism of the Spirit. There's more to it too, but those are the big ones. And by that gift of forgiveness, indwelling of the Spirit, and being made brand new, God is going to enable you and truly cause you to do His work. And then so when I really do do awesome things because of what God has made me to be, I can't take an ounce of credit for it. And that should be something that I rejoice in. Why would I want to elevate my puny little self anyway? Because I am puny. Aren't we all? So the end goal of this this is what I thought of. Yesterday I was running through this and I was like, What is God after here? What does he truly want to do? He wants us to do a bunch of good works. He does. Why? Because he doesn't want to do them himself. He wants us to be of a certain type. So we can show off. He can say to Satan, look at my people. They're way better than yours. Does God care about such things? I don't think he does. Even in the war with Satan, you know, which we do become witnesses in that war. But does God need us to be witnesses to win the war? Does he need us at all? I think not. And then Jesus says something. I'll just quote this because I have to close them out of time. In his prayer in John 17, John 17, 24, he says, Father, and, you know, he's praying about us. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given to me. The Lord's desire for us, and by the way, before this, he says that eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son. 
But his prayer is, I desire that they be with me where I am and see my glory. Imagine that. I mean, is that the end goal of it all? Is that really the end goal of all the work that we do? All the growth that we have, all the wisdom that we gain, all the knowledge of the Word of God that we gain, the changing, the maturing. I think it is. I mean, I may be just taking a stab at it here, but I read through his prayer several times yesterday, and I see in the Lord's Prayer here in John 17 that he wants us to be with him, to love like him, to be sanctified like he was. These are key words in that prayer. He wants us to be with him. Um, the, the goal here is living a life in the presence of the Almighty, walking with him, being with him. When you do that, you will do his work and all of that will be done. But sometimes I think, and I have to ask myself this, you know, what am I doing this all for? And the fact, that is, the fact is that when I do it, this life that he's given me has actually lived in his presence. And I don't think there's anything greater than that. I can say, well, can I be in his presence and not do the work? No. <laughs> there's no shortcuts here because God does the work. Anyway, I'm out of time. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, grace, and mercy. Thank you for all things which come through you through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you for the baptism of the Spirit and for the wonderful benefits and and blessings that it brings to every single one of us. May we be in awe of what you have done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll take our offering and get you off to your Christmas shopping. Let's pray. Let's pray for our offering. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give and give as your believer priests to give and worship of you. Uh, thank you so much for all you've done for us. May this offering be a blessing uh, to, and may it be used as a blessing. In Christ's name, amen. close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for our time together. Uh, Closing moments of our service are dedicated to anyone who has not come to believe in Christ as your Savior. Uh, The offer is always out there to all mankind. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who became a man. He has fulfilled all of human history, fulfilled all of Israel's promises, and he has died for the sins of the whole world. When he died for the sins of the world, he paid for them. And when he paid for them, he went into the grave for three days and he was risen again. He is alive 
And therefore, if you believe upon him, you will die with him. Which is what needs to happen. You, our sins make us dead. We have sinned against God, every one of us. We are born this way. But Christ paid the price, paid the penalty for our sins. And by so doing, he is also resurrected and alive. If you believe upon him, you will be alive and have eternal life. So I beg you to consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the many blessings you bestowed upon us. Bless this day for all here. In Christ's name, amen.